Welcome to one more edition of Politics on Right. My name is Egberto Willis. Today we are honored to have a very special guest. Dr. Mansoor Nordell is a board-certified optometrist with offices throughout the Denver metro area. In addition uh, to his time spent as a doctor, he's a real estate agent and investor. He currently resides in Castle Pines, Colorado, with his wife and two boys. He's the author of One More Mountain, Fleeing Iran for America. Good afternoon, and thank you so kindly for being here with us at Politics Done Right, Dr. Uh, Nerdell. Well, thank you very much, uh, Egberto. I, uh, it's an, an honor to be in your show and uh, uh, the opportunity to uh, uh, talk to you as well as your listeners. This is a, uh, an honor for me. Well, look, let me, let, me, let me first tell you the book that we want to discuss. And, you know, I've always been intrigued with Iran. I mean, I, I, from the time I went to the University of Texas at Austin, which guess what? It was in, it started in 1980. So that should be quite a propos with you. But anyway, the book, uh, it, it, interesting. But first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, not in Iran, but uh, right now, present day in Colorado. Uh, well, uh, as I have uh, uh, really written the book, I am an immigrant. Uh, uh, of course, I, I came into the United States as a refugee in 1989. And now currently, I, I live in Colorado and I operate uh, multiple uh, eye care centers in the uh, Denver metro area. And uh, um, as, as you mentioned, I have uh, two kids. Two boys. Actually, one is in uh, uh, UT Austin. So oh, you, he's a that's, Longhorn. That's right. He's a big Longhorn fan. So well, he I don't should think be he happy misses any of the games. I know, but here's the deal: we are in the champ, or rather, we are in the uh, in the four. What what you call it? Playoff. That's we right. We made it to the playoffs. So you're you're going to be coming to Texas, I guess, a few times to check him out. Does he like it here? Oh, he uh, he loves it. He loves Austin, and he's uh, uh, he had a difficult in the summer there, though. But with the heat this this year was yes. was hot, so brutal. Yes, yes. So he is enjoying it. So uh, that's what I uh, I'm of course really in the real estate uh, world. I'm a more investor than really more a real estate agent. But mm -hmm. I do have a license for just myself, uh, and so to understand the real estate world a little bit better. So you came here and pretty much lived the American dream. You had the, 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 the wherewithal to go ahead and work your butt off to move forward here in America, correct? Yes, I actually came with the $413 in my pocket and the deposit for my uh, uh, apartment was $275. So I was short even paying the first month uh, first month the rent, but I am uh, grateful what America has offered to me and many other immigrants. Uh, I am uh, really perfect example of immigrant dream, immigrant life. Let, uh, let me. I, I'm not going to try to get political with you on 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 my politics, but I just want to say something. One of the reasons we do what we do here is exactly that reason I'm an immigrant as well. I'm an immigrant from Panama, Central America. And one of the reasons I do what I do is we came here like you did on a, to America as a dream, to America as a, a place where you can be successful if you work hard, and America where your integrity gets you further. 
So we cannot allow that to go away. But let's talk about your book. Tell me, why did you write the book, first of all? Um, well, it's the... Uh... I, I'll tell you background. It had been 2007, a very good patient of mine invited us uh, to see a, a play that he was going to be. Uh, so, uh, and this the play was uh, in a Cherry Creek North uh, Theater. And I had, really, we didn't know what the play was. And my wife and I, we just really went to uh, support Mark. Mm -hmm. And we... I uh, went there and the play was about the diary of Anne Frank. Mm -hmm. As a Persian, as an Iranian, we have no clue who <laughs> uh, <what's> the... <laughs> uh, Anne Frank is. We really right. don't. I had never known about it. I had uh, uh, up to that point. So I am sitting in the uh, play uh, theater, uh, uh, Egberto, and I was really watching my own life in front of my eyes. It was so impactful that I could not sit uh, and uh, watch the play. I walked out. I couldn't control myself. My wife didn't know the depth of the stories. And she panicked. So I uh, here I'm 45 years old and uh, in the hall is uh, uh, crying his heart out. So Ironically, I had the actually exactly at the same age as uh, Anne Frank. I had my own diary because so it was so real uh, that I couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. This was the opening of my uh, talking to my friends and my patients. And anytime I told a little bit of a story of my life to my patients and my friends, they said, oh my God, you have to write this. Finally, in 2019, I had more opportunity. Uh, workload was reduced significantly. And I said, this is the one thing I need to do. So I really wrote the book for uh, my kids, my new generation to understand what life looks like outside this wonderful country that we have here. Now, you started the book with a story and candy. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, I was four years old when I, uh, my cousin and I, we ran to a, a only store that our village had. And we uh, ran to get a candy and the uh, store owner refused to sell us the candy. And I was just confused. I was, uh, how do, what would a four years old really can comprehend? So I came back to my uh, mom and crying and say, uh, uh, his his name was at, at Red Eye Muhammad, actually. It was so funny that uh, um, uh, he had, now that I'm in eye care center, and I, I know what that condition was. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and my mom uh, said, yes, the uh, store owner will sell, will not sell goods to our family because we are not Muslims. We are Baha'is. Mm -hmm. uh, we were the only Baha'i family in that village. And that's, I really faced the discrimination and uh, from age four and knowing my family is different when, when I was four years old. The, the reason I wanted to start there is because that is inherently 
something that so many of us have to go through. And I and I think it's it, as bad as it is. Sometimes what it it either it either makes you stronger, meaning you're going to have the resolve to overcome what's been happening to you, or you're going to succumb to it. And it's evident you uh, you overcame it time and time again. So tell me the story of uh, you moving around in Iran as a your you and your family as a person. Uh, with a different religion than the, the religion that predominated there. And let me tell you how I'd like to kind of address this, because you lived through various periods in Iran. Uh, uh, in other words, in Iran, we started, we can, we could we could get started with Mossadegh, or we could get started with uh, when when the Shah was in power, migrated into to, um, to 79, when uh, it was taken over. How were these different periods? Well, with you, not Mossadegh, but the other one. Well, how how did this period affect your family not being that religion that that has been a constancy several thousand years in the making? So um, I actually uh, addressed these uh, some of these in my book. So I started the book really since when uh, I was four years old, mm -hmm. and I described what as a uh young boy i uh really experienced everything that you can think of uh bullying name calling uh stone thrown at and just really there was not even a day that we would i would come home uh without uh uh being bullied uh, in the uh, on the streets so uh but that was part of daily life and uh, but in 1978, uh, things changed drastically. So our family, which was the only Baha'i family in the small village in northwestern part of Iran, uh, actually our house uh, was completely destroyed. Uh, our belongings were looted, uh, uh, and we were forced to leave uh, the village. I was only 14 years old. Basically, I spent my teenage years in a uh, larger city called Tabriz in northwestern part of Iran. And these teenage years were uh, tumultuous. This was the time that there was a war between Iran and Iraq, as well as the everyday political uh, unrests. As, uh, and Baha'is were always target during these times. So uh, several Baha'is were executed during that time uh, in Tabriz. Over 200 Baha'is were executed actually in early 1980s in Iran. So I witnessed all of those. Now, interestingly, did the Baha'i religion start off in Iran? Yes, yes. Baha'i faith is started in uh, 1844 in Iran. Now, uh, you uh, that uh, being of the religion, I mean, there's nothing... There's nothing physically ethnic, diff ethnically different than that you have from any Iranian. So you had to be demonstrably, you you had to display your religion in somehow that folks knew you were uh, of a different faith. Correct. Correct. They should know that. Yes. So it takes a certain amount of fortitude that in in a place where <laughs> mostly the entire or the vast majority of the country is um is islam of, of the islam faith muslim that you can actually stand out as a baha'i or christian or whatever other religion that 
inhabits the, the location. What do you think gave your family that resolve uh, to keep, uh, to be able to live that life surrounded as they were? Well, I think that just to being true to yourself and your heart and your belief. So uh, my family, I still have three brothers in Iran, Egberto. Uh, They're still suffering today. It's, it hasn't gone away. So what has happened since 1988, it has become systematically uh, backed by the government. So that's the prior 1978, uh, uh, 79. Um, yes, we were uh, in a small village. Uh, I was... Uh, uh, bullied. However, it wasn't in a larger city population to know, okay, you are Baha'i. So, but now it has become a systematic persecutions of Baha'is by the Islamic government. Uh, no Baha'i even today as a young man can get a higher education than high school. Oh, really? That's right. Every my American friends, they found it, they really get dumbfounded to hear it. No Baha'i is still allowed to get a uh, higher education than a high school in Iran. Baha'i's cemeteries and holy places are destroyed. And even the old, you know, the, what is it the old uh, a dead body is going to do to you? So, and these are done and uh, really the, by the government. No Baha'i is still, uh, no Baha'i works in a, a government agencies, large corporations, and they are in a tremendous economic pressure. So they are all over about 300, now about 300,000, close to 400,000 Baha'is. All of them are suffering in every aspect of it uh, because of these persecutions today. Now, are you telling me then, uh, Dr. Nodel, that um, Baha'is in, in in Iran, Baha'is are not doctors, lawyers, or any of these things. They can only be, let's say, a storekeeper or something like that? Unfortunately and sadly, absolutely right. Because if you can't get a professional degree, you can't practice medicine, you can't practice law, you can't practice engineering right. or any one of those subjects. Correct. So if you wanted to be a doctor, you just about had to be a refugee as you were. Tell us a little bit about your path from Iran to refugeedom. Sure. Well, just to give you a little bit, even to uh, uh, confirm what you said, actually, my brother was a second year medical school student and he was expelled from university and he is still in Iran and he is in a just running a uh, shop mm -hmm. and not every shop, by the way, it, it, they cannot run a shop that has it has to do with the food or so restrictions. Just incredible. Right. So, um, to answer your question, so I left Iran to pursue a uh, dream of uh, uh, really going becoming an uh, architect, mm -hmm. uh, which I ended up being not an architect. And I went to uh, I came to uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as a refugee. As I mentioned, it's really nothing in my pocket. Right. Um, so where, where did you come through? You you started in Iran. How did you get to Wisconsin? Uh, I was in Turkey uh, for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. So what the book is all about, because I walked the uh, border of Iran and Turkey in the dead of winter, 13 days walk, when the uh, temperatures were 
uh, way below zero, snow up to chest. We crossed the uh, frozen rivers and uh, uh, mountains uh, as high as our Rocky Mountains in Colorado, even higher. Wow. Uh, so, and 13 days. We walked at the night times and we uh, slept at the day times. Uh, so after 13 days, which again, I detailed every single day. Unfortunately, I had all these uh, notes for uh, uh, to bring those information yeah. to life. So it's after I arrived to Turkey, uh, you have to go to United Nations the refugee office and register. So I was as a refugee in uh, Turkey for uh, 18 months before coming to United States. And then you got went through the immigration at the United States to get get in entrance as a right. refugee into Wisconsin. Right. Now, um, when you said you traveled through those mountains uh, at night for 13 days, is that a, a known smuggling path, let's say that um, that's used to get people out of Iran who are trying to escape the persecution? Um, uh, there's a ethnic group in that uh, region, Kur Kurds. Everyone knows uh, these days Kurdistan. Right. Uh, the Kurdistan is the Kurdish people live in the uh, region that share the uh, border between Iran and Turkey and Iraq. Mm -hmm. So they really know that uh, region well. They uh, they actually intermarry from the one country to another country. So the border doesn't mean anything to them. Right. So we had uh, uh, a guide uh, guided or hired these uh, smugglers or Kurdish smugglers to guide us. But it is so dangerous, uh, Egberto, that very, very few Iranians uh, will take that path. It's a super dangerous path. So there are other Baha'is have escaped from Iran. The majority of have uh, taken the route to Pakistan, which mm -hmm. is much less dangerous. Now, uh, when you made that route, that um, journey, did you do it with, with relatives or did you do it pretty much, I'm getting the hell out of here? Uh, no, two other friends. Uh -huh. uh, uh, two uh, friends that one is in, now in Australia and the other one... Uh, I was in Canada, but unfortunately, we lost him. Okay, sorry to hear. Sorry to hear about that. Now, it's interesting because one of the reasons that um, after I, I, you know, Tom kind of told me, uh, Tim told me about you, um, that immigrant story is powerful, especially in these times where xenophobia is uh, going through the roof. And I, I tell you, um, a lot of a lot of people don't understand the tribulations that folks go through to come to the United States or other uh, countries. Some of them uh, uh, seem to believe like uh, there's really much of a humane choice not to do it. And I think anybody who can walk across a mountain, walk across mountains on zero degrees, uh, <laughs> they've earned their right to live anywhere. Well, uh, thank you. I think the... Uh, my view on this, frankly, my story probably is not any, uh, I am lucky one that I was able to write this story, Egberto. Right. I, I am very, very sure there are much uh, 
more deeper uh, stories than mine. The immigrants, they really, uh, what I my view is, bring a different, fa uh, uh, different light to our fabrics of our society. We contribute to this society, uh, and I, I am perfect example of this. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm actually honored to say that uh, in the past twenty five years, I had uh, employed as high as eighty six uh, staff in the Metro Denver area. So, uh, it's a gift this country has offered to us, and I am uh, very blessed to be a part of this. Well, of course, you're blessed to be a part of it. I'm blessed to be a part of uh, of this country. We are blessed to be immigrants are blessed to be here. And and those who are former immigrants as well are blessed to be here. Absolutely. So what I what I try to mention and with your story, why I why it it endears me to it is, again, uh, it, it's not only that you've employed a whole lot of people is that you've you've you have made the fabric of this country like every immigrant has made the fabric of this country what it is because of who we are is right. why we can be as powerful as we are absent that we're nothing i 100 percent agree I, I think the other thing that i i have to say no one really uh gets up and leaves uh, his or her country because we we just want to okay right there are certain circumstances that forces us to take this really dangerous route. I right. mean, I, I, I didn't uh, just get up and say, okay, I'm just going to walk on 14, 13 days in the dangerous mountains. It was actually, I knew uh, uh, several months before that, it was 19 years old uh, and three other uh, Baha'is were perished in that mountains. Mm -hmm. But you do it. Sometimes you just don't have a choice and or you see a choice future better on the other side of the mountain. At least you take that risk. I took that risk and I succeeded. And unfortunately, there were people, some did not succeed. And that's, that's how the immigration is. Mm -hmm. Immigration is all about taking a, a risk of the for better future on the other side. Well, the people who settled this country, they took risks and uh, as well, didn't they? Absolutely. And, and everybody who has who's sitting on this land took some risks. Those who lost this land who were originally here took uh -huh. risks. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I try to put out there to uh, because uh, right now we're going through a period of xenophobia in, in this country. And I, what I try to make people know using my program uh, quite often is that first of all, uh, it is uh, it is great to have you here in this country. Uh, it is great to have all the immigrants in this country, but let's also note that externalities, including some created by our country, yours truly, the United States of America, are directly responsible for a lot of the people transitioned into this uh, to this land. So I think um, t t your story and the story of many other immigrants who could tell a different story than your story would give the mosaic that people need to see that, in effect, we shouldn't be looking at immigration as a problem, but we should be embracing immigration, not only because it's a net positive for the country, but just because it's the right thing to do. A hundred percent. I think we we need to, I'm pretty sure you know all these statistics and uh, 
the United States uh, uh, really 4.4% uh, uh, of the world's population is live in the United States. Yeah. We consume 18% of the world's resources. Yes. We have to rethink, okay, uh, of our con uh, consumerism. We have to think. So it's a, America is a land of opportunity. And if we want to have a better world, we need to re-examine our behavior, frankly. And... Uh, and uh, the the fact uh, you know math is uh, as you well know math is absolute if Correct. 4% of the people are taking 18% of the resources and then you ask why immigrants are coming over here well 100%. there's a shortage of resources so math is absolute we have to be we have to be cognizant of that and one of the things uh uh mansoor is that too many people they just hear the top lines and they don't understand the history of the world and they don't understand the complicity of what we do in the world and your story and the story of immigrants over and over are there to tell just that look i i i enjoyed speaking to you but before we go i need to ask you a few things one thing most important question is sure. what would you have liked me to ask you that i didn't ask you uh i think you asked everything and uh only thing that i would uh uh, mention how this is someone can get uh, get a hold of this book. <laughs> oh, wow. we're going to we're going to talk about that. I just want to know if uh, within the meat of the book, is there something that you want to tell the audience before we go ahead and tell them how they can find the book? Well, uh, I think it'd be addressed it again. The, it's really the book is about the uh, human resili resiliency and uh, uh, shared uh, faith and how. Uh, I like my readers and people know how the what the Baha'is are going through in United, in, in Iran uh, as a result of that. But I appreciate you know, I think we address everything that I thought we were going to talk. Well, look, let me ask you, uh, uh, Dr. Nerdell, how can folks, uh, first of all, all the links to your book is going to be in the accompanying blog for this particular program. But please tell them how they can get your book in other domains. Oh, thank you. Uh, the uh, the website for the book is www.onemoremountain.com. Uh, the book is available in every format, in audiobook, uh, ebook, Kindle, and it's available through the all the uh, uh, major bookstores as well as the uh, or any of the uh, Amazon and uh, uh, major bookstores. And you even got it in hard copy too. Yes. <laughs> Ab absolutely. So, well, look, um, first of all, Dr. Mansoor, the author of One More Mountain, Freeing Iran for, uh, Fleeing Iran from or for America. Let me repeat that. One More Mountain, Fleeing Iran for America. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you very much. It was an honor, and it was an honor to be here and uh, uh, to talk to your listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Stephanie Thomas. Stephanie Thomas is the Secretary of State of Connecticut. Stephanie, welcome to Politics Done Right. Thank you for having me. Well, Stephanie, uh, you know, 
the first question that I'm going to ask is this question I shouldn't, because we shouldn't be going there. But it was shocking to me when uh, when I saw you and you were presented as the Secretary of State of Connecticut, a state that I don't think I would have expected a black woman to be Secretary of State of. I mean, I, I'm sorry, like I said, it's a wrong question. <laughs> But, you know, I'm honest on this show. It's understandable. When I moved to Connecticut 10 years ago, mm -hmm. I would have never thought that a black person, least let alone me, would be secretary of the state. Um, but here I am. Now, yeah. <laughs> Tell me, first of all, how what kind of campaign did you run? I mean, it is something that I think, uh, first of all, it speaks well of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. That's that's mm -hmm. the first thing. But secondly, it's the it is something that I think you can impart on others as how how can you campaign in a state that doesn't necessarily look like you, yeah. but is it is looks at you and say you are the best qualified for sure. the job. I think it's really important. I always used to say on the campaign trail that voters are smarter than we think. Right. And what I found is that all voters, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic level, know how to spot the truth right. and know how to spot BS. Right. And I'm a truth teller um, and I'm also about empowering people, right. voters, to use their power. So I share with them information about how to make their voice heard. Um, in the secretary's race, there were seven other Democrats mm -hmm. running, also very diverse. Two Latinas, um, a black man, um, two Caucasian men, and someone else. Oh, and another black man. So it was a diverse pool. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that helped shift the conversation further. Um, as I mentioned to you, I'm the first black secretary that Connecticut has ever had. And we have a long history of allowing right. the black person to be our state treasurer. Right. It was a very progressive reform in the 60s. Mm -hmm. that, hey, let's get someone of color in right. the executive branch. Right. So it, there's always been a black person in the treasurer's right. role, but never anywhere else. And I'm not about quotas. I think I just went out there, told the truth, and proved that I was the best candidate. And it, it shows. Now, what does the Secretary of State uh, in, your, in your state in mm -hmm. Connecticut do? Oh, so um, in Connecticut, we do many things, but the two biggest things, we're in charge of business services. Mm -hmm. So anytime someone wants to start a business or nonprofit, they go through our office. But the reason secretaries of state are sort of on the radar nowadays, we also oversee the administration of elections. Right. Um, so I don't need to tell you how important it is to make sure that people have access to the ballot, that uh, elections are safe and secure, and that we are always just thinking about what's coming next versus what has been. Right. So you are in charge of elections in Connecticut. Yes. So if anything goes wrong in Connecticut, we're you know looking where at, to look. we, we got to look at you now. Well, I'm going to say no, because mm -hmm. so every state is different and people mm -hmm. don't realize that in Connecticut, we are not organized by county. Oh, so really? every single town administers their own election. So right. we have 169 towns okay. and they are elected. The people who administer right. are elected in their town. Right. Right. fund it by their town. Right. But we have to make sure they're properly trained. We have to make sure they're following all the laws. And we have to make sure um, as much as we can that we are backstopping so that nothing bad happens. So in, in Connecticut, does everybody live in a town? Or because, you know, like in Texas, there are rural areas and that sort yeah. of stuff that are not incorporated. 
Is that different in... Uh... Nope, it's the same. So we have a rural area, a coastal area. Right. We have big cities. I believe our smallest town has about 800 people uh -huh. and our largest, about 140,000 so, and everything in between. So then is everybody associated with a town, even, yeah. even if they're not... Uh, even if they're not within, let's say, the, the town limits or city limits or whatever, they are associated. They are associated with the town. With, yes, with exactly. A, with the town. Well, I'd like you to tell uh, tell the folks out there, and specifically progressives, um, yeah. if they want to launch a campaign that, that many would think would be fairly hard to, to win, mm -hmm. how would you suggest that they start your campaign? How did you start your campaign? Because, uh, like I said, I, I think it is impressive yeah. that, again, and you said the field was seven strong, mm -hmm. and I mm -hmm. mentioned you had a runoff thereafter, mm -hmm. and you had to win in a runoff yep. as well, Yep. and, I, and you did I it. won a convention, a primary, and a general, so three elections oh, wow. <laughs> all rolled up in one. Right. Um, but my political career, um, the advice I would give is yeah. to simply believe in yourself, mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to run and lose, and that's okay. Had you ever lost? I ran for the state house. Mm -hmm. um, I was never involved in politics. I started paying attention and I didn't like what um, my state representative was saying and how she was voting. So I decided to just throw caution to the wind. I knew nothing. Right. I had to petition onto the ballot. Right. I had no campaign manager. I mean, a friend of mine who lives in Brooklyn and yeah. I live in Connecticut, uh -huh. Brooklyn, New York, started helping me out. I had really? very little. I had nothing going for and me. You, wait, wait, wait. You just got involved because you got pissed off. I got pissed off. Okay. Yes. So and I thought um, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And and no one had run against this woman for three election cycles. Oh, really? And I said, that's not even a democracy. Mm -hmm. People, voters need choice. Right. So I actually didn't think I could win, but I thought it's important to do it. So I ran and guess what? I lost. Right. But you, you <laughs> but, got to taste it. But only it. by a few hundred votes. Oh, wow. So then you started to say you could win. But I'm going to tell you another story if we have time. Yes, we do. I decided we got a huge Democratic majority that year yeah. in our state house, state senate, and our governor. Right. So I'm like Democratic trifecta. I don't need to run again. Right. It's not based on my ego. But there was one law that I was really passionate about, uh -huh. and that's early voting. Right. Connecticut is one of only four states in the country that no has no early, early voting. voting yeah. And with a Democratic trifecta, it still didn't pass. So I said, wait, 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 did they have a bill to pass? There was a bill. Yes. And it, it just didn't get all the support I thought it could. So I said, you know what? I need to get there and see what's happening. Yeah. So I ran again and I won. Right. And in um, Congress. No, in, in this is state. our state house. Oh, okay, uh, I mean, in, yeah, in the state, state house. house. I mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so I won and I asked to be on the elections committee mm -hmm. uh, and I was appointed vice chair. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to really get in there See and do everything. Really yeah, exactly. Yeah. So long story short, uh, Connecticut mm -hmm. has early voting now and we will wait, be wait, rolling wait, wait. it are out next saying, year. Are you saying that you went on there, became the vice chair? And you pull those guys' legs and say, we are going to do this? Not me alone. Advocates yeah. have been working on yeah. this forever. But I think just making sure it's top of mind because people get distracted with so right. many other issues. Right. And I'm like, without 
all these voting reforms, every other issue withers on the vine right. and dies. I want to stop you a second for the audience. <laughs> I, I want you to really listen uh, to what uh, Secretary of State, I noticed I read again because I, I mixed some of these positions yeah, up, yeah. Uh, Thomas has to say. She was a person existing in her state. She saw something that was wrong and she engaged and she put herself on the line she lost her first election. It did not deter her. Mm -hmm. She ran for the second one, won, but she didn't only win, but she went with a coalition and got the change that pissed her off off in the first place and got it changed. That's what I call democracy. And yes. that's what I call an activist getting what needs to be done. And we can all done. do it. We all have to try we at least. We all have to try. So we're, we're moving on. You got that passed. Yeah. So um, our secretary of state decided mm -hmm. she wasn't going to run for re-election, mm -hmm. a Democrat. And I thought, wow, that job sounds great mm -hmm. because it focuses on two things I love. I'm right. a business owner. Right. I, um, uh, I had always worked in the nonprofit mm -hmm. sector my entire career, started my own fundraising consulting firm for right. nonprofits. So I love businesses. So right. the secretary's office handles business. Right. And I love democracy and yeah. making sure people, you know, I think... Um, this so we live in a representative democracy, and I think we are living in the American myth mm -hmm. that what that means is you vote and then poof, like magic, everything works out. Right. And we all know, activists know, that's not like how that. things happen. So I'm trying to affect a culture shift right. in what a representative democracy means. Yes, we elect people to represent us, but then we have to back up that vote. <laughs> we have to stay involved the other 364 days yes. a year, by the way, to make sure when I was in the state house, a bill would come up and I would say, oh, I wonder how my constituents feel. I might hear from three people. Right. We got to start voicing not only big picture, like I believe in clean air. Right, we right, all do. Right. But what's the bill number? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, is exactly. there a bill up? That's actually going to affect that change. Yes. And yeah. how do we get that bill passed? Right. Or how do we get that bill tweaked? Right. Language changed. And you only do that with advocacy. You got to go testify. You have to send in your emails. You right. got to make those phone calls. You got to have meetings with your legislators. And I was just even early voting, something I was so passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, we have to change our constitution. So it went to a ballot measure. 60% mm -hmm. of voters voted yes, they wanted early voting. Right. But then the bill came up for what should it look like? Should it be one day? Should it be 30 That's days? That's why early voting could be one day, right? And it could be one day. Yeah. It could be two hours, exactly right? There right. were some people yeah. who were like, well, let's just do it for half a day. And some people said 45 days. Mm -hmm. So we all went out. We sent emails like, please come testify. Right. Do you know how many people showed up to testify? I'm scared to ask. About 65 people. You know, that's not too bad, eh? That is bad if you want change. Well, yeah. In other words, if, if it were uh, something that wanted massive output, you would think that yeah. they would have been crowded so in the room. we yeah. just got... People just got lucky that the Secretary of State right. and the committee were le the committee chairs right. were leaning toward like two weeks. Right. But what if they were leaning toward one day then, and no one showed up? Right. 
Right. One so day. people you know, you know, always wonder, like, why the bill didn't get shaped a certain way. Yeah. Often it's because not enough you people know, it, showed it's up. It's sad that when you said 65. You thought it was good. I thought it was good, right? 60% Six, of voters said they want it. So right. in real numbers, that's probably in that election, um, probably half a million people. Right. And of half a million, 65. Only yeah, it's up. not good. It's not good. You're right. That's not good. That's not good at but all. But yeah, so then, so after you got all your work done and you proved yourself mm -hmm. in the legislature, mm -hmm. uh, you then decided, I'm moving to higher office because now that I've got this law on voting passed, I want to administer the damn thing. Yes. And how did that happen? Um, you know, it was audacious, I mm -hmm. won't lie. Right. <laughs> because at that point, I had only served one year in right. the House. Uh, when I decided to run. And as I said, there were seven other Democrats. Right. Um, and some people, you know, always say, like, wait your turn. Right. Or you haven't been here that long. Right. Most people had no idea who I was. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Because I hadn't been involved in politics. Yeah. But, um... My mother didn't raise someone she, afraid. She raised someone that's going to challenge the system. <laughs> and I just thought I would regret it if I didn't try yeah. because I really thought I had something different yeah. to say than the other people running. Mm -hmm. And it was not based on ego. We passed a lot of election law over the last two years, and I felt like this was a time for a secretary who's really focused on implementation. Right. And I felt I have a management degree, I own my own business, and it just felt like I would be a good tactician for right. this time right. um, versus more policy. Right. So I did it, you and, did it. and I you, won. You won. I know, no, but you won three times. Yes. The, the, the convention. convention. Yeah. The primary. primary and the main thing. Yes. Okay, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? That's oh my always gosh. my last question and it always comes to you. Oh, you know, what I would like I, to talk about, I do, part of the reason I ran mm -hmm. is civic literacy okay. is what we're missing oh in this country. Yes. Yes. Because yes. no entity has ever been responsible for yes. it. So if the State Department of Education doesn't think it should right. be taught or doesn't have the resources, it's left to chance. Yes. And I believe we will never fully realize this representative democracy. We will never have policies that match the will of the people. Mm -hmm. When you think about how many popular things the people believe in right. that never get enacted, Part of that is because we all are suffering from a lack of civic literacy. That is so, so true. But I mean, the good thing is we yeah. can all learn it. Yes. And I say it's like anything else. If you play a sport one day a year, you're crap at it. Yeah. But if you practice every you day, can, every you can week. You look like you're great at it. And we live in a time with the Internet. And almost every public meeting in every state is right. online. Right. You can watch it or you can go. Right. to it and that gives you an opportunity to understand the language to understand the details to understand who supports and who's a foe and we have to learn how to intervene in all branches of government um, at the local level state level federal level to make our voice heard so secretary of state <laughs> of connecticut stephanie thomas thank you so You're kindly so welcome. for having a pleasure. been on politics done right thank you I'm here again with Kiela Smith. I tell you what, we met in Pittsburgh and she had great things happening with this. What was the name of the company? First of all, welcome to Politics and Right. Thank you. 
you had this thing that you were doing with this group. What was it called again? Artists Design the Future. And what was that all about? So it is was a project that... Wait, let me back up. Is it is it a project or was it a project? Is. It is a project. Thank Go you. Ahead. Yeah. That uh, we were working on. I had the brainstormed the idea being inspired by some things I've seen, by what I've seen my father do, by what I've seen an artist in particular here do in leading uh, a similar sort mm -hmm. of development over 20 years ago. Right. And we were working on it. She, she, I approached her and I said, would you help me build this? And she said, absolutely, emphatically, without right. hesitation. And we worked, as I said, in the shadows mm -hmm. <laughs> for three, four years with no funding. Right. So then I applied to Vocal. And that is? The fellowship. Right. So Vocal is a national fellowship to seed social justice-based enterprise and project, and project ideas right. that really wouldn't normally get the focus or support, mm -hmm. which was where we were. So right. Artists Design the Future, our initial intention was to form, or is to form as a worker cooperative. You remember we I talked remember about that. I remember that because you were talking about raising the money per square yes, foot, Yes, exactly. So we're focused on artist-led community engagement mm -hmm. and development of mixed-use spaces, i.e. buildings, right. for artists and creative entrepreneurs to own where they work and live or their workspace right. collectively in a cooperative model, right. as a cooperative. So you have all kind of artists living in the same place. And I think I'd ask you about, well, can a writer be there? Can yes, the that's a creative, absolutely. absolutely. Yes. Right. And a, a tradesperson who right. builds things, welds. They and fit the cut, bill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So since then, since we spoke and, last year. And actually year, that is what this is supposed to be now, the update. You just yes. gave us a little preamble of what it's all about. Now, what's the update? So oh. the update is myself uh -huh. and the two other co-founders that are that brought I to met. the table, yeah. Laura Weatherid and Sahai, Geraldine right. Bear, and myself have been working from, so last April, the Vocal National Fellowship right. awarded a $30,000 oh, wow. and business and storytelling coaching to be that seed funding, yeah. to be the catalyst to get this momentum of funding. Yeah. Subsequent to that, I wrote another fellowship application that was successful, brought in another 40,000. Subsequent to that, we got a, a, a small seed, another seed fund, right. just around 5,000. Subsequent yeah. to that, we got National Endowment for the Arts grant to do feasibility study which for the building and how much is and that, that worth? through our fiscal sponsor which is near yeah. northwest arts council and uh -huh. that was twenty five thousand. wow and then the city of chicago department of cultural affairs awarded us forty five thousand as part of a program called together I, we heal I'm wait impressed. i'm not done there's one oh, more oh, okay um and that together we heal through the department of cultural affairs at the city of chicago yeah um was also through our fiscal sponsor and then we just were awarded from the Department of Planning at the City of Chicago. Right. That is with the Office of Equity and Racial Justice at right. the city. That's a newly codified office. Under the new Mayor Johnson. No, this was under the old mayor. Oh, okay. Right before she left. Right, right before, before she, she left. left. Okay. 150000 of funds 
in what's called the Wealth Building Initiative, focus on shared ownership models and building the ecosystem. Am I to understand that you guys just brought in about a quarter million dollars? Over, almost, Over almost 300, 294,000. 294, well, yeah. my math skills weren't working. Actually. That's okay. Yeah. It, it, it's, and if you remember last yeah. year when we spoke, in terms of just getting to the building, right? Roundabout could be anywhere around eight million to twelve million, right. but we're talking about a twenty-five to thirty-unit building right, right. with twenty-ish uh, work-live units and commercial spaces on the first floor. So, since then, we've had some retreats and really thought about the idea, and so there are other ways we're thinking about how it could exist, whether it's in a smaller buildings to start or multiple um on what they call scattered site it right. could be new construction like what we talked about right, last year right. so there's and because there are developers out here who are developing in our communities because this what we're looking to develop is actually in the community that i live in basically right. um but these there's developers out here where their only metric is roi I think we talked yeah, about that yeah. last year, but there are other things that must be considered. Right, just for folks who don't yeah. understand, that's return on investment. I'm sorry, return on investment, thank you. Mm -hmm. But they only look at the financial, they don't look at the, the what is the value to the community, because mm -hmm. that's extractive. Right. That's just a developer coming in and taking from us. Right. What are we building in? How are we using this to for placekeeping? How are we using this to build perhaps the technology and the environmental infrastructure and the cultural infrastructure? of our own communities and then own it right because there's artist developments in chicago right and the majority except for the one my co-founder led and yeah. a couple other small ones all the artists are renters and they don't own and self-determination is really important because then you control the trajectory of your business because artists are entrepreneurs business right. people you control the trajectory of sustainability and stability of where you live and where you work then you can build wealth, then you can grow your income, then you can grow your family in an intergenerational environment right. where you have community. So that's now, what we're doing. So did you go ahead? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so the money we've raised to date was all catalyzed by Vocal. Right. And I feel like had I not, had I not applied for that to get us this funding, I wouldn't have had the clarity I have now mm -hmm. and that things got really honed and, you know, time tested. Right. And, and then they not only funded the fellowship, it's a six month fellowship, they then have an alumni program. So they've continued to stay right. near me, meet right, monthly, right, right. even send me other funding opportunities I can apply for. Yeah. So they really want to see it grow legs. Now, when you, when, you, when you get this stuff built out and you start building, how is it exactly that folks are going to get ownership into whatever space Great you create? Great question. Yeah. So part of the funding that we got right. with the wealth building from Department of Planning is, and um, the Together We Heal is we are we already have planned and we're going to be launching this fall mm -hmm. six, I'm sorry, eight to ten session training sessions about the principles of cooperatives. Right. A little about the background of black African-American cooperatives in particular in the United right. States and the artists and creative entrepreneurs that go through all those sessions then have the opportunity. So everyone has the same understanding and, 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 and ownership of this idea of cooperatives. Yeah. And then they can raise their hand and say, okay, I want to be an owner in this building. And then we begin the process of them starting to put some skin in the game with money on the table right. as their investment to have a share of ownership in the cooperative. 
And our goal and our vision is to obviously continue fundraising towards the eight to right. 12 million. Right. And the other we need for more feasibility. Right. So that we can also see those artists and creative entrepreneurs with like their initial but funding. they're going to all have skin and in the then game they all, exactly yeah, and okay. and and ideally what we'd love what we envision is being able to whoever goes through those trainings to actually give them in their pot uh, of investment mm -hmm. an amount of money whether it's 500 or a thousand to really catalyze well, their right. investment that they'll need to raise mm -hmm. to to have that ownership stake and then once we have the whole crew of however many artists are going to be in the building right now let's just call it 30 because that's right. where our brain was last year then this is how it turns traditional development on its head also not only we're talking about cooperatives there's no need for sales there's no need then those people also have a say in in how in, the building is run well, they have a say to meet their needs so yeah. what does this space need to have what does right. it need to look like what can we financially do with all those needs, what can we meet? How can we find happy mediums? Where can we design? So that takes us to design, right. which is then an important part okay, of wait, the process. There, there are two things here, because earlier you mentioned that you, you, you don't have a design yet because it may be a building, it may be a scattered thing of uh, homes, it may be, you know, you haven't envisioned what the outcome is gonna be yet. And you're saying that these people who have skin in the game, they will determine if you guys are gonna build a building, you're gonna build several buildings, Etc. Is that am I understanding um, correctly? To a certain degree, yes. Right. Um, yes and no. Okay. So we're simultaneously. So the grant we got for wealth building with the right. Department of Planning. The goal in the twelve months that we have is to be at a place of what's called site control mm -hmm. by the end of that twelve months or sooner. So we, we already land. or control of a space. I mean, either land or renting. So control just means you have the right to do things with the space. Got it. To, okay. do, to begin the development process. You may not own it, right? but you might. Right. It all, it kind of, you know, every single situation is different. different. Right. So then when we get that, we will then take the next steps. And um, the design of the space. Mm -hmm. So during that time also we'll be in, including those artists, doing focus groups, talking with them, doing what's called a charrette. It's kind of a design experience with right. the architect and community to say what we want to have in this space. However, because of the complexity of development, mm -hmm. it may not be that those ultimate owners of the cooperative, collective owners of the cooperative, actually have a say in, oh, it's going to be this building or it's going to be scattered site or it's going to be that. Would, what would make them not have that decision making? Because it's such a simultaneous process between getting them trained. So meaning us the leader, finding, you're, the, you guys us as, as the leadership team may just go ahead and make that decision because it's more expedient at that time. I, I mean, expedient may not be the right word. Well, expedient but, yeah. probably isn't the right word, but right. because there, there, there are competing priorities right. of need to get site control. Right. However, site control does not define design. Right, right. So design then becomes the next part of the process, right. which absolutely includes right. the owners. And that's almost more important. It's equal, but it's right. almost more important because how the space is used indoors, outdoors, collectively for, with the community is also something we'll be doing simultaneously, mm -hmm. but that almost becomes more the, important than 
well, is it a five-story building right, or is it right, scattered site? Right. So then um, the, the last question is going to be this. The idea of having these cooperatives, housing for, uh, for artists, etc. Uh, do you have intentions of leveraging that further? It's like, hey, this is a model that actually works. Yes. If this model can work with artists, what other trades or what other kinds of stuff can we leverage this to to kind of give, give us more of an inclusive democracy that allows folks to build wealth? I want to add a word in what you just said. Go you said it. inclusive, democratic process right. and accessible and because I, we're also right. foundationally based in wanting to assure, not wanting, right. committing to assure that a third or more of the building is also made accessible and right. designed from the beginning right. for people with disabilities who are creative entrepreneurs and artists. To your question, not really. There's not a vision to say, okay, now we want to expand and see how this works for some other community. There's still enough artists creative entrepreneurs right. with and without of all abilities who have this, who have a need for space, whether it's for their practice or mm -hmm. whether it's for their personal life mm -hmm. or both in a work live situation that are not being met. The affordable housing um, need in the city of Chicago is huge. Yeah. And specifically for artists, I can't tell you how many calls or emails I yeah. get with people saying, do you know where there's some space I can afford? Right, right. We've started to, we've been doing surveys and uh, getting in. So the need uh, is still great. So I, yes, but we do want it to be a model that can be replicated in the city. That's, that's why we're doing it. Replicated, yes. replication, replication. In the city, yeah. nationally, perhaps even internationally, because there aren't enough models of this type of development. Yeah. At least we know that the need is huge. Well, you know, I, uh, from the time I met you and you told me about the model, I liked it. I, th I think it's something that should work, can work. And you tell me about cooperatives, I fall in love. I think cooperatives <laughs> are where we really should be heading. Cooperative versus corporations. Yes. Cooperatives, ver you know. Well, and we made a, we clarified that when we talked last year, though, is that actually a cooperative is a type of corporation right, it's just I'm, a different model the model is that it's not shareholder based it's, it's based grassroots it's grassroots, human exactly. it's de democratic exactly shareholding it's is not democratic. it's not about who's exactly. at the top has control and all that Kayla you should remember by now I'm going to say what was the question that I should have asked you that I didn't you should be prepared are, for that yeah I am I am what do we need going forward so uh, I'll that, tell that, you that. That's a cheating answer because <laughs> as it turns out, that's the same question. That's the same one you gave before. Go ahead. So what we're doing now that you mm -hmm. see, you see this momentum of mm -hmm. fundraising and support. We're really excited with yeah. what's coming up with events and the trainings and the community engagement and festivals and things we're planning. What we really need to get some stronger legs under mm -hmm. this and to be able to propel quicker mm -hmm. is funding sources that come with more than just one year or six months. So we're really projecting looking the at three to five thousand dollars is only for one year. One year. Okay. So looking towards three to five year um, right. philanthropic support to give some capacity buildings. We can bring on perhaps some more staff. We can because really I'm I'm only considered part time, but I work of course more than part time. Yeah. And so really getting some so longer term funding. There's three, three of us, yeah. yes. Well look I think you guys are going all to do artists, that. by all the way, artists. And, and 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 I think you guys are going to do it. The fact that, you know, uh, 
writing, writing proposal, not proposal, what you call them, uh, grants, writing oh, proposals for that, grants yeah. is not an easy thing. And actually getting the grants is a harder thing. So, uh, all right, look at, look at her. All right. Congratulations. Thank you Kiela so much. Smith, thank you, thank you. I tell you thank what, you. that is, I, that you said you had an update. That wasn't an update. That was a mega update. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.